starting to wonder if there's something more behind this effort to get rid of majority rule in Ohio than what the people behind it are saying. It just seems like it makes as little sense as HB6 did, and we know what was behind that. It's strange, and it's one of the first things we'll be talking about on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Layla Tassi. Lisa, you're up. How many former Ohio attorneys general have joined four former Ohio governors and just about every elections official in the state to oppose Secretary of State Frank LaRose's proposal to reduce the power of the voters of this state and abolish majority rule on amending the state constitution? Five former attorneys general in Ohio have joined the chorus of statewide elected officials saying that House Joint Resolution 1 is just a really bad idea. So Republican attorneys general Betty Montgomery and Jim Petro and Democrats Richard Cordray, Nancy Rogers and Lee I. Fisher wrote a letter to the Ohio General Assembly asking them to drop the HGAR1 legislation, which would increase the voting threshold for passage of amendments to 60 percent. They also want them to drop plans for an August special election. They say that this would discard the commitment to majority rule in the Ohio Constitution since 1912. The 60% proposal is just bad for Ohio, and voters should soundly reject it if it's on the August ballot. And they say it's a fundamental change to the Constitution and that constitutions are designed to endure. So the Senate last week passed Senate Joint Resolution 2, which is their version of the 60% threshold, and Senate Bill 92, which is calling for an August 8 election on on the matter. So those bills are now in the House. The House is considering House Joint Resolution 1, and there are possible votes today in two House committees on this. Governor DeWine has said he will sign Senate Bill 92, uh, calling for that August election. Think about what we have here. Mike DeWine, Senate President Matt Huffman, Secretary of State Frank LaRose want the 40% minority of Ohio to dictate the rules for the other 60%. It is fundamentally wrong, which is why Republicans and Democrats who have served as governor who have served as attorney general and others are saying, you can't do this. This is wrong. So that's what I get at where I start to wonder, is there something else going on here? I mean, do, do the lobbyists in the state house have that much sway? How did they get it? This is completely contrary to the wishes of Ohioans and, and to the interest of the voters. And yet these, these elected officials are running down the path despite all signs telling them to stop. And all of these former elected officials are unanimous in their opposition to this. I think next we should talk to former secretaries of state and see what they think about it. <laughs> yeah, we should. And look, these are real people. Jim Petro, Betty Montgomery, uh, you know, governors on both sides. Th- these are not clowns. These are people that were respected by Ohioans saying, don't do this. What are you thinking? Yet they're doing it. You start to wonder, is there money involved? Is somebody getting their pockets padded the way we did with HB6 with $60 million of bribes to get this done? Because it doesn't make sense in any other in any other scheme. Well, we know the lobbyists behind it, right? We know it's the uh, people anti-abortion folks, it's the pro-gun folks, it's the the people who don't want the minimum wage raised, and they're the ones whipping these legislators. They're the ones that donate 
thousands of dollars to legislators. But I think we also need to look at the way that we run elections and, and primaries, right? The way that we run primaries, the most vehement of each party gets to vote on who they want as their candidate. And so these people aren't beholden to, you know, the, our elected officials are not beholden to the people of Ohio. They're elected to a small subset because of the gerrymandered districts. They're in safe districts. If they're in a Republican district, it's the most Republican people that are going to vote for them. It, it, it There's both convergence here, I think. But Laura, it's a democracy, right? You're yeah, an elected official be. in a democracy and a lobbyist comes in and says, hey, I want you to reduce democracy. I want you to head more to authoritarianism. And you're just going to say, yeah, sure. I, I just don't buy it. That There's not enough. You can't just say this is about abortion. There's something more going on here. These people ha have to have something else that's driving them to work so hard against the interests of Ohio. Frank LaRose never said a word about this when he ran for reelection, but he had some secret plan in his up his sleeve the minute he got elected to hammer down the value of the vote. And this guy wants to run for the Senate. He wants to run against Sherrod Brown, an anti-democracy candidate that's seeking to be part of the most powerful body in the land. It's an amazing thing. I, I hope you're right, Lisa. I hope secretaries of state come out of the woodwork. I hope former treasurers come out of the woodwork. Everybody who cares about democracy in this state should be standing up to say, cut it out. Well, and I, I just think, though, that people are not out for the people. They're out for themselves, and they just want to stay elected. It's uh, It was a big move. I, I salute all of them for putting their names out there to say, let's mm -hmm. stand with majority rule. That's what democracy is. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Meanwhile, what is Ohio Governor Mike DeWine doing while this is all going on? Well, what's the thinking behind his plan, Layla, to rebuild and revamp 33 of the state's highway rest areas? And where is that money coming from? I'm so glad I got this question because I have a lot to say about it. <laughs> <laughs> these these uh, rest areas will be getting new buildings uh, where they'll be playing music and they'll be displaying highlight high. They'll have these highlighted attractions displayed that are up the road. Yesterday, he held a press conference at one rest stop that had already undergone this makeover in Preble County along I-70. Jeremy Pelzer says that the walls were covered with photos and information about nearby attractions like the Wright Brothers National Museum, Houston Woods State Park, and the Dayton Dragons minor league baseball team. And then outside, visitors can walk through a storybook trail lined with pages from the book, The Little Engine That Could, <laughs> or sit in rocking chairs while listening to Ohio-themed music selected by Ohio Department of Transportation Director Jack Marchbanks, who apparently is a musician and hosts a weekly radio jazz show. And so five more similarly revamped rest areas with new buildings and other conveniences are coming later this year all around the state with another five rebuilt rest areas scheduled to be completed in 2024. There are a total of 83 rest areas in the state. So there's these 33 and then another 50 are going to get a facelift, DeWine said. And he says that, you know, his thinking here is that as a dad who would take his kids on road trips, he is well acquainted with the rest areas and that what his family always needed on those trips was a place to stretch their legs and reset and see what attractions lie ahead down the road. So what do you think? I, I, think <laughs> I got thoughts the, to share. I'll wait. I want to hear what you have to say. Look, look I, I thought 
what they did on the turnpike rest areas, I think was under Bob Taft, was brilliant. Those things are perfectly designed. If you need gas, you get in and out. They're, they're convenient to get to the restrooms. They have the necessary parking. There's places to walk your dog. When I stop at a rest area, it's because I have some business to do. Right. And I'm trying to get from point A to point B. To, to spend time with the little engine that could just <laughs> delays me getting there. I can't okay. believe we're wasting time on this. Look, we're in the 10 days that shook Ohio right now with what's going on with democracy. This is what Mike DeWine wants to play with, the right. little engine that could. Right. Yeah, that's a little bit of a false equivalence, though. <laughs> I mean, he is doing the business of the state. And somebody who did a lot of long-haul road trips in, in, in Texas, rest stops, you know, I don't just stop to do my business. I stop and I have a picnic lunch. I stretch my legs. And you have to think about truckers. I mean, you know, yeah, we have tourists using them. But we got to think about the truckers. These rest stops are really important to them. They want to stop. They'll often they sleep there in their cabs. So, I mean... But I'm not all right. Well, any... here's what I. Th- okay. First of all, that Preble County rest area revamp cost about fifteen million dollars. I mean, oh, that's a lot. What do they think this is? For a three of them. Pl- we're staying fifteen million for the Preble <laughs> and two other ones. Well, and oh, well, that's that. I didn't think that's what the story said. Okay, but also when we took our kids down to Hocking Hills over spring break, we stopped at a rest area for bathroom break. Perfectly fine facility, clean, functional. That's all I ask for. We pulled in, I took a look around, sketchy trucks and vehicles parked around this place, sized up who was most likely to murder us, <laughs> ran, <laughs> ran in with my kids, used the bathroom, ran back out. That's what most people do at these rest stops. I mean, guess what I'm not going to do? Take my kids on a storybook hike at a highway rest stop. I'm also not going to hang out in some rocking chairs and jam out to whatever the ODOT director has decided to call Ohio-themed music. I don't know what that is. Also, I don't need their suggestions for what attractions are coming up down the road because I know where I'm headed. We're not just wandering the state. And also, it's not 1987. We have iPhones and the internet, which tell me what lies along my route if I feel like randomly taking in a minor league baseball game. So this is a waste of money. Have it. I, well, the, okay, the rest stop I saw was clean, functional, picnic table. That's all people need. And then the truckers, yeah. they surely don't need these amenities. They're there to rest and go. So I, I, I think what Lisa, Lisa has the, the point that these are places that are necessary. And when you're yes. traveling, if you've been driving for a long time and you want to stretch your legs, there should be a place to do that safely. I think the key word was the safety. You want to be able to know that you're not going to be accosted, that these are generally safe. That's why I think the turnpike rest areas are, are so ideal. They spend a lot of money on them, but they're they're heavily used. They're safe. They have everything you, you need. It's a little different because they have restaurants and things in them. Um, so, so keeping these things clean, lighted, and safe is great. I don't get turning them into mini Disney World attractions. I, I don't think that's what people are looking for. Look, if you want to have like the nice rack of um, promotional material that places pay to put them in, I, I do enjoy those. I like a printed book telling me, you know, like I'm in whatever area and here's the ads and the listings. I'm all cool with that. But I'm with Layla. I do not want to sit in a rocking chair and stare at the highway. Like, no, I want to get back in my car and I want to get where I'm going to actually relax. So mm. I agree that you don't want them to be decrepit spaces that would give travelers like a bad vibe. And if you want to stick, you know, like some free bumper stickers about Ohio and that's wonderful. But 
I, I, $15 million for three rest stops. And that was in 2019. It's four years later. And the cost of construction has skyrocketed since then. Uh, I, I just think we have a lot of priorities in our state. And, um, you know, putting little engine that could signs up next to a highway is right. not I how mean, I Lori, are you ever going to take money. your kids on that storybook trail ever? No, Would you I ever... don't take the one in my library, right? The library. The that's the place for those, not a highway rest stop. If I were a, a serial killer who wanted to kill a family, I'd go to the little engine that could trail and wait. <laughs> oh, dear Lord. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, just plant a seed. Steve Litt is going to take a look, I think, at the different rest areas of Ohio and our neighboring states to do a comparison later this summer. Could be interesting. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Who will take the reins of the giant Cleveland Foundation upon the retirement this summer of longtime leader Ron Richard? Laura, this is not a surprise to anybody, but it's no. finally official. Not a surprise, but sounds like a really good fit. Lillian Curry, she's an architect. She joined the foundation in 2005. Really impressive resume here. She now serves as the executive vice president and chief operating officer of the foundation, and she'll take over that top job on August 1st. She'll be the 10th president, the first woman to ever hold the post full time. So she is the daughter of Lebanese immigrants, a plastic surgeon and a teacher. She grew up on a farm in rural Portage County, earned her bachelor's degree in architecture at Kent State, a master's degree in urban design at Harvard. And then she came back after working in Boston and really uh, worked for Cleveland Public Art. She did a whole lot of good for the community. She made sure there was a bike lane on the Detroit Superior Bridge and really has work tirelessly to improve the region ever since. And she's the head of the Cleveland Planning Commission, and she's going to continue to do that. That seems like that might be a bit onerous. It might be a bit onerous. I I would think that, I mean, that's a big time commitment. Right. But, when, you're, uh, when you're trying to save the world and stuff, serving right. in a secondary role can be can be challenging. But her, her view, she shares with Ron Richard that the foundation should not just say yes or no to requests for grants, but they should take an activist role in Cleveland. And they give out a whole lot of money. This foundation was founded in 1914. It's America's oldest community foundation, has assets of more than $3 billion and distributes more than $120 million in grants annually. So Curie says she's she has some ideas of what she wants to address deep racial and economic disparities, the disconnect between city neighborhoods and the waterfronts on Lake Erie and the Cuyahoga river. And she sees strong parallels between architecture and philanthropy. And we've seen her dedication to the arts as well. So, uh, and, and she's been in charge of this move that they're moving to Huff to try to uh, develop that area of Cleveland with their new headquarters that will be opening soon. I hope that one thing she does is a better job of telling their story. I don't think the Cleveland Foundation is very effective at telling the story about the impact of all that money it gives out. They announced that they're giving out the money with one sentence. This group gets this. This group gets this. But you never really find out, is it making a difference? Is it changing lives? Is it improving Cleveland? And hopefully she will come in and get that done. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We got an idea last week of just how rickety the West Side market has become when some merchants there had no choice but to shut down temporarily. Lisa, we've been talking a lot about the need for money at the West Side market, but this is pretty acute. What happened and what are they saying? 
Yeah, all four elevators at the rear of the building were broken last week, so that meant that vendors couldn't move their refrigerated product from the basement to their kiosks, and so they had to close because the stairs were not an option. Don Whitaker, who runs the D.W. Whitaker meat stand, he said that he got a delivery that day. His staff was carrying 80 cases of chicken weighing 40 pounds apiece down the stairs after the delivery, and he said the stairs were wet because the roof leaks. So, you know, just problem on top of problem. Now, elevator parts were ordered back in January, but they didn't arrive until last week. Two of the four elevators are working again, but it's just a Band-Aid fix. And the city's Westside Market strategist, Jessica Trevisano, says they've been doing this for decades. Instead of replacing or comprehensive overhaul of the elevators, they're just doing short-term fixes. And the proposed master plan for the market calls for replacing all of the elevators and adding a fifth one from the basement to the produce arcade. So yeah, this is they just need to bite the bullet and spend the money. I'm just sorry to see that there's dissent in city council over this. They need to get it done well we yeah i mean we've been talking about how how much is needed there and how much it's fallen apart but what a great example i mean the, mm-hmm. the the storage is all in the basement they have to take their stuff down to the basement and the food they sell is heavy so the stairs are not really an option for some of the vendors who are more elderly this is pretty much a disaster i agree i'm with you i don't know how anybody on city council can say we shouldn't spend the money this is mm-hmm. This is serious stuff. This puts people out of business. Being they had to shut down. They had to close down and not get their income. So pretty bad. And and you're right. The 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 it's a band-aid what they did. It'll probably break again. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Why does the Northeast Ohio Coalition for the Homeless have some hope now that county government will start making regular contributions to the work it does to help people with food and blankets and tents and medical care? Layla? Well, Cuyahoga County recently supported the Northeast Ohio Coalition for the Homeless's street outreach team for the for the first time with $150,000 from the American Rescue Plan Act money that they have. But they made it pretty clear that this is just going to be one-time money. Beyond that, NEOC is going to have to look for other funding sources, the county said. And until now, NEOC has been staying afloat on donations alone. But the coalition is really hopeful that the county will have a change of heart and begin funding them on an ongoing basis, considering... County Executive Chris Renane's pledge to create a new Department of Housing and to decrease homelessness by 25% by the year 2027, especially among the unsheltered population that sleeps on the streets. NEOC sees the work that they do as really critical to that mission that Renane has laid out during the pandemic when the county paid to house people in hotels to avoid crowding in shelters. NEOC helped get nearly all the unsheltered homeless into these hotels. There were only about 30 people who resisted it and chose to remain on the streets. Normally, about 260 people are out there on any given night. And and while in that living arrangement, NEOC helped more than half of those people find permanent housing or treatment for their conditions. And last year, NEOC connected 111 people to permanent supportive housing. So it makes a lot of sense for the county to strengthen that partnership with this organization that already has both the relationships with the unsheltered homeless population and the social working experience to to achieve the goals that Ronane has outlined. But the county doesn't really have any money, right? So they'd have to find some sort of funding source to do it. The money they provided was from the American Rescue Plan, right? Yeah, that's true. But, you know, everything is about priorities. And if Chris Renane is setting this as a priority, 
you can't just not fund it, right? <laughs> well, so. think about how far that money would have gone if they didn't spend mm, it on the medical mart. Or any of the other squandering. Slush funds, right? <laughs> hundred right. plus million. Think what you could have done with that money. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Some police officers work their entire careers and retire without ever firing their guns. Not so with the officer who's named as a defendant in a new lawsuit about excessive force. Laura, who was the officer and who did he shoot this time around? The officer is Robert Taylor, and he has shot t- four people over his 23-year career, not disciplined this time around. And the person that he shot, Melvin Robertson, is suing. He accused Taylor of negligence using excessive force when he shot Robertson on August 2nd, 2021, in the Giant Eagle parking lot at West 117th Street. So, and and, and then also they say the city should have disciplined and trained Taylor. And Taylor, sorry... Robertson had a gun in this altercation that was happening in the at the Giant Eagle, but he never pointed the gun at anyone. He never pointed at a police. He didn't point it at the person he was arguing with. And then the officer shot him. And well, he was basically had his hands up and was running away. So Robertson was placed in a medically induced coma after the shooting. He still suffers from pain in his hip, has nightmares and fears that the police will use unjustified force against him, according to the lawsuit. Okay, you can read it all on cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Yesterday was a light news day, so I dropped this radioactive topic into the agenda. Layla, what are the arguments for and against dropping the prohibition on anonymous letters to the editor on cleveland.com and in The Plain Dealer? Well, this conversation began after a 10-year-old child wrote this really thoughtful letter to the editor, which we published along with her name and hometown, as is our practice. And some reader managed to track her down and sent an anonymous letter to her home to dispute points she made in her piece. I mean, it's just so creepy, right? Well, the girl's mother asked if we could adjust our policy to protect the identity of juveniles in the future who might want to write a letter to the editor. And that stirred up this internal debate here about whether we should perhaps extend that offer of anonymity to anyone who might feel that they have something to say, but that saying it might jeopardize their jobs or could draw scorn from neighbors or that perhaps we are just living in such a divided society that it just doesn't feel safe to go public with your opinions anymore. So in your letter from the from the editor column from last weekend, you you laid out how throughout history, some of our most important turning points in the development of our democracy came about as a result of opinions expressed anonymously. For example, Common Sense by Thomas Paine was widely circulated before anyone knew who authored it. And you also told the story about one person who once toured our newsroom when former editor Doug Clifton ran the place. And, and this guy suggested that perhaps letters to the editor should be anonymous. And Clifton called the idea insane and dismissed it out of hand, but we're in a different era now, so perhaps it is time we examine the question through the prism of the world we're living in. So uh, that's kind of where we're at. You've been collecting these responses from from readers. How many did you say you have? 250, 300? <laughs> I've got 250, and I'll, I'll be writing about it again. I'm not going to give away what they said. It was somewhat heartbreaking. The, the argument that people make for using the names is, is if you have something you think is important enough to say, you ought to put your name behind it. It's a kind of a, the traditional thinking. Uh, but, but there are a lot of people that don't feel comfortable doing that. And what I'm asking is 
if, if we are the central forum for the right and left sh- share opinions, and we are, our forum section, our opinion section on cleveland.com is a place where we collect opinions from across the range. It's really the only place you get this. If you're on social media, you're in an echo chamber of people who think like you. Are we doing a disservice to the community by leaving out the perspectives of people who fear using their name? Is that, is that a whole section of society that's being left out of the conversation, a true silent majority? And that's what, what we're trying to get at. And it, it's there are people with very strong opinions on this uh, and ultimately will we'll come through with a decision still collecting and doing some research. But it generated a huge response. I don't get 250 mostly long and thoughtful emails in response to anything I write. I think, but would that would their names be discoverable by somebody who wanted to get them? Like, say, if somebody sued you or you know tried to pull Freedom of Information Act on you. I mean, what are the legal implications here? I, I don't. I don't. All of that would have to be decided. I don't think we would keep them, so I don't know that it would be discoverable. Look, we're responsible. If we publish mm-hmm. a defamatory letter to the editor, we're the ones responsible for that. We're the publisher of that. The, you know, they may want to sue the writer, but the writer's not going to be the one with the deeper pockets. They're going to come after us. We we screen letters now for anything that would be defamatory or incorrect or or things like that. Um, I, I think a lot of people believe that if we go this route, we need to know who they are, that mm-hmm. we have to do our, our due diligence to verify these people are who they say they are and then not publish their name. But, but again, it's, it's up in the air. I, mean, I threw this out there to get a discussion going. It certainly has ignited one. Uh, and, and it's been interesting to hear from people from all walks of life on their thoughts about it. Uh, I, I it's think- kind of. I think that that the fact that that as long as we know the identity of the writer, that would be my only stipulation. I think we have seen anonymous writers on Facebook and in political propaganda manipulate public discourse too often. And as gatekeepers, we we would know, you know, we would need to know the origination of the material. But apart from that, I really don't see any reason why we couldn't accommodate a person's wish to remain anonymous. I mean, otherwise free speech becomes the privilege of only a few. If you happen to live among neighbors who don't share your worldview and you're worried about their reaction, or if you're concerned that speaking out might cost you your job, we're forcing those people to remain silent if we demand that they publicly identify themselves. Some people on our team vehemently disagree with this idea, and you'll get to see their thoughts (laughs) in an editorial roundtable we'll publish on Saturday in The Plain Dealer and on Cleveland.com. It's a good debate. Thanks to everybody who has written. my, My favorite part about this is we clearly have ignited a whole lot of breakfast table discussion, which is what we try to do with our opinion columns. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Why is the number of child care workers in Ohio lower than in any time in nearly a quarter century, Laura? The combination of low wages, the shifting poverty threshold for reimbursement from government and licensing qualifications. So right now, Ohio has about 12,849 child care workers. That's about on keel with 1999 with 12,330 and half of the peak in 2000 from 2005 when we had more than 25,000 child care workers. And it's not just the pandemic. I mean, part of the reason is fewer kids. We've talked about that on the podcast before. There's the birth rate has gone down, but fewer families are getting government subsidies to send their kids to child care centers. 
uh, in 2000s, it was at the beginning was 185% of the federal poverty level in Ohio. Then it was bumped down to 150. Now we're at 125%. So you have to be pretty, pretty destitute to be able to get help to send your kids to child care centers. And now Mike DeWine wants to raise that in his latest budget. He made it up to 160%. But some other states are way above where we are. We're 300% of the poverty level, for example, in South Carolina, which I never would have plugged as a progressive, like helpful state for child care. Um, another example reason is the state reimbursements. Another thing the state can do something about. Ohio offers one of the lowest reimbursements in the country in the 25th percentile for what it actually costs to send someone to child care. So a lot of these places, if they take kids on subsidies, they're losing money. And then, of course, <laughs> the pay. The pay is terrible for both of those reasons we just talked about. The average is about $11.17 per hour for a child care worker in Ohio. And you can make a whole lot more than that at McDonald's. And they're literally leaving to go to jobs at McDonald's. So you're overseeing this project, exploring the difficulties and the and the changing face of childcare. This is an indication that things are pretty dire. Do you ultimately foresee some sort of prescription coming out of all this work that says here's here's how we might need to to go? Here are some solutions to all of our childcare issues. Yeah, and I think it's going to come down to money, right? I mean. It, Money doesn't fix everything, but if you have a state that's paying uh, childcare centers 100 or sorry at the 25th percentile. So if you have all of the childcare centers in Ohio and you you know one to 100 and you're paying near the bottom of what they charge to reimburse, then you're basically saying we don't really care about quality childcare. We're going to pay a very low rate, and it is among the lowest in the country. It shows what Ohio you know, how much Ohio cares about child care. And as much at the beginning of this project, I thought, you know, we're not going to see changes at the federal level, even though people want it. But I wanted to see if we could get some talk in Cuyahoga County, like kind of some grassroots ideas of what we as a community could do. And maybe that's still possible. But the more that I learn about how Ohio has kind of just like burdened these, I really think we need more action at the state too. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for Tuesday. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back on Wednesday talking about the news. Mm-hmm.